Well, it's good to have you here for uh, the third Sunday of Advent. We are in the heart of the season now, and as you know, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, the current series that we're in, Christmas Carols, we're using a different carol every Sunday to help us really focus in on what the season is all about and some particular part of the the story of Christ coming into the world and and, uh, looking forward to his second coming. And I hope that what we're doing week to week has helped you to sort of reclaim uh, carols that you've heard a million times and that sort of, you know, just familiarity stuff will tend to lose its power and meaning. And I hope by hearing the story of some of these songs, it helps to stir up again, really, the power of these songs. And so the carol that uh, we'll be focusing on today and using a singing in just a minute is a very old one. It's about uh, 300 years old, and it is written by Isaac Watts. Whether you know that name or not, you've sung a lot of songs by Isaac Watts if you grew up in the church because he is the father of English hymnody. I mean, uh, the whole movement of the hymns, was in, in English at least, uh, started with him. Uh, he's an interesting character. He was a little bitty uh, man. He was about five feet tall and not, not a healthy man at all. And he grew up in a time when the church had for a hundred years had sung essentially nothing but the Psalms. And the Psalms, though they're beautiful prayers... As they get translated from Hebrew into English, they don't come out very musically. And uh, the tunes that they had been put to were rough, just from a technical standpoint. It was just really hard to sing stuff. It just wasn't pretty music at all. And people, by and large, in the churches in the late 1600s had just gotten so sick of just sort of clunking through the worship time on Sundays. And so when Watts was a teenager, as so many people have felt in the last 20 or 25 years... It's interesting how we have, in our generation, gone through a similar time to what happened 300 years ago. You know, so many of us have heard people in church, there's been just all the fights in church about contemporary music versus hymns and praise and worship. Well, this was what was happening 300 years ago at a different level. They were just sick to death of of the music of the day and just how awkward it was. And on a particular Sunday, when Watts was 15 years old and his dad had preached that Sunday morning, He just was so disgusted and frustrated by how clunky the music was. And he complained out loud at church afterwards saying, Why can't we have better music to worship God with? And one of the deacons in the church overheard him and said, Young man, if you want better music, why don't you write better music? Trying to put him in his place. And Watts took it to heart. He went home that afternoon and he penned a worship song and brought it back that night to the service and said, all right, you asked for something better, here's something better. And what he wrote, I want to read one verse of the song that he wrote that afternoon for that night. Now he's 15 years old. What he wrote, it was like it was prophetic because it spoke of how God would use Watts in the the life of the church for centuries. Uh, One verse said, Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst his Father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name and songs before unknown. Wasn't that just perfect for what was about to come? Because from that point forward, hymns flowed from the pen of Isaac Watts like a river. God just gifted him with hundreds of of songs, uh, songs that many of which you know, songs like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is the kind of stuff that he was producing. Well, after 18 years of writing hymns and preaching and the Essentially, his songs were just known in the churches where he preached. But after 18 years of that, in 1707, he published the first collection. Uh, It was called Hymns and Spiritual Songs, and that began to catch on in the church. And another dozen years later, in 1719, he published another collection that was called The Psalms of David Imitated. And what he did there was really a, a pretty cool thing. He 
and, and it's almost like blended worship today, it was an attempt to take what the church had been doing and repackage it in a way that the old school crowd could, could follow, but that a generation hungry for something different would appreciate. So he went back, and with each song, he would take one of the psalms of David from Scripture, and rather than just paraphrase it, he would take the core idea of what David was trying to say, but understanding that David had such a limited scope of view that David could only see a small part of history. And he said, if David were trying to communicate this same truth about God and what God has done, but if he lived in our day, Or if he lived in New Testament times, if he could know the reality of Jesus and the cross and Christ's victory and what's to come, what would David have written about that in this psalm? And so this whole collection then, each different song was based on a psalm. Well, one of those songs out of that collection you know far better than any other because you sing it every Christmas. It is one of the most beloved Christmas carols based on Psalm 98. The irony is... When Watts wrote it, he had no intention for it to be a Christmas song. The song is not about Christmas. It's not about Bethlehem. It's not about Jesus' birth. And yet it is one of the all-time favorite Christmas carols. And I want to read you just a, a piece of the psalm that Watts was using to imitate what David would have said. It's from the 98th Psalm where David says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Well, Watts, when he took this psalm to to sort of rewrite and create a new song, he took that idea of how all of the earth longs for what was coming in the person of Christ and how not just humanity but the earth itself would rejoice and and he pulls on all these different elements from nature and how the world rejoices at what Christ has done and he takes what was an Old Testament concept of God's victory from the past and how the world celebrated that and Watts took the idea and he looked forward thinking about Christ's return and how when Jesus comes back as the Lord of all the earth, and he sets everything in order, and how the scripture has said that the earth longs for and cries out for Jesus' return and for the kingdom to come. And so he wrote this song about how the whole world will rejoice at Jesus coming back and setting everything in order. And he titled the song, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom, which was a perfect fit for what he actually wrote into the song. Probably nobody in the room knows this song by that title. We all know it by the more familiar title, which is simply taken from the opening line of the song, Joy to the World. I want you to hear, before we sing it, I want you to hear again the familiar words to the song, Joy to the World, but recognizing the psalm that it's come from, where he's talking about all these things in nature, crying out in praise to God, but thinking not about Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, thinking forward to what it's going to mean when Jesus comes back and he crushes all evil and his justice His righteousness, love and goodness are experienced and the difference that that will make under the reign of Christ. That's what Watts had in mind when he penned the words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat, 
the sounding joy. And boy, if you haven't caught by now, the third and fourth verses certainly make us realize we're looking forward to Christ coming back. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love and wonders and wonders of His love. It's a great song of victory. Let's stand together as we remember Christ's first coming into the world as we look forward to His return. Let's sing with appropriate joy and heart joy to the world. to the world the Lord is come let earth receive her King let every heart prepare Him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven sounding joy repeat repeat the sounding joy joy unspeakable joy overflowing well no tongue can tell joy joy that rises in my soul never lets me go He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders and wonders of his love joy unspeakable joy an overflowing well no tongue can tell Joy, unspeakable joy, it rises in my soul, never lets me go.
great stuff. You may be seated. I said it in the first service and I'll say it again. Welcome to the praise team, Harold. Man, that's a, that is a swinging little guitar man right there. Good stuff. Well, uh, as you can see, we took Watts' song and we've already added a modern twist to that. Uh, and you can only imagine that Watts would appreciate that. You know, it's so crazy how the church has fussed and fought and gotten so divided in the last 20 or 25 years over the right kind of music, the kind of music that God loves. And I'm just going to go ahead and take a detour right here and say this is not particularly about the message. We are so foolish when we think that there is a kind of music that God likes. How silly is that? I mean, the music of the Old Testament, the music of the New Testament wouldn't even sound like music to us. It's so foreign. Didn't sound anything like a hymn. Didn't sound anything like a contemporary praise and worship song. Music through different periods of history and in different cultures has varied so much. And if it's from the heart and it honors the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, it's pleasing to God. He's not worried about the beat of the music. And so it's such a cool thing that in different generations, God gives different kinds of tunes and different kinds of lyrics and Watts was a rebel in his day because he actually wrote these hymns and he you know eventually many of these hymns were put to the popular tunes of the day that were sung in bars and people were scandalized because you can't use tunes like that and now here we are uh, decades and centuries later and people are just as up in arms when you don't use hymns throughout the service and we're using this contemporary music. Well, it wasn't many generations ago. People were ticked about those same wonderful hymns that were pleasing to God that were set to those terrible bar tunes. Well, the truth of the matter is God uses all of the above. And when the next generation comes along and takes a 300-year-old worship song, Joy to the World, and adds another chorus to it, I can only imagine that Isaac Watts goes, yes, glory to God in that. A new generation is finding a fresh way to express praise to God. So we're just going to always be a church that says we are open to whatever God has got for us and hymns and choruses and whatever the new worship tunes of the day are and still holding on to the old songs of the past. God's pleased in all that. You good with that? You're in the right place. Well, uh, the song that we just sang, as I said, originally... Uh, was written under the title the messiah's coming in kingdom it was a perfect advent song as i said it was not a christmas song because it was not about a baby it wasn't about a manger it wasn't about mary and joseph nothing about that it's a forward-looking song but it's a great fit for advent because in the season of advent we're always looking in two directions we're looking back to remember christ's first advent when he came the sinless Son of God as the babe of Bethlehem and all that his life, his death and resurrection, his ministry on earth would mean. We're always looking back at that at Christmas, but through the Advent season, we are equally to be looking forward and anticipating his return. And the reason that Joy to the World is such a powerful and somewhat unique song for the season is because it really helps us to do both because it's really easy to apply this celebration to Christ's first coming in the world But it's the song that helps us always be thinking and looking ahead. Wouldn't you agree that if you don't know about the second advent of Jesus and what it means, the first one doesn't mean a whole lot? I mean, if Jesus is just the baby of Bethlehem, if he's just a great teacher who lived for 33 years here on the earth and taught a lot of good things, and that's just the end of the story, isn't it a pretty hollow story? 
I mean, that, that would be depressing if that's the whole story. But the truth of the matter is, this Jesus from 2,000 years ago is still alive. He's still reigning. He's still extending His kingdom every single day. It's spreading like wildfire across the planet, and He's going to come back and bring to completion this thing that He started so long ago. And so this is an appropriate song that's about the kingdom of God. That's what the whole song is about. It's about the king coming. At, I mean, listen to the opening lines again. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That's what the kingdom of God's about. It's about the reign of God in the lives of men and women. How do you get in the kingdom of God? You have to open your heart to him and allow him to be Lord and king of your life. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you as a, a bit of a warning and a disclaimer on the front end, I know it's the Christmas season, and next Sunday and Christmas Eve, you're going to get to hear the heartwarming stories of Christmas. Today, I'm going to sock it to you. <laughs> and if you're ready for that, say sock it to me. I'm glad you asked for it. Now you're going to get it. No, seriously, th this, is, this is the heart part of the story. This is not the heartwarming part. This is the heart of the message. The angels, with their announcement in Luke chapter 2 of Jesus coming, they made a declaration that actually sounds like it, it carries echoes of Watts' song when they said in verses 10 and 11, the angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That sounds a lot like joy to the world, joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. This sounds, this echoes so much like the opening lines to this song. The announcement of the Lord coming, not so much an announcement of a baby arriving, is the heart of the Christmas story. And I want us to, to really home in on that idea that Jesus is Lord. In the New Testament, that term for Jesus appears 740 times. That's a lot. I mean, the New Testament is not that long. 740 times of all the things that Jesus is called most frequently, he is called Lord, in Greek, kurios. This is the New Testament version of the Old Testament word Adonai that, that they would use to, they would insert that in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrews would, in place of God's more, what was considered kind of the proper name for God, Yahweh, that was the most holy and revered name. The Jews thought that that was so holy they couldn't say the name, they didn't want to write the name, so they would insert Lord as a substitute in place of it. Well, this is basically the Greek word, the same thing, and it means Supreme in authority, master, controller. And what I want us to really get down to today is as we consider Christ coming into the world, what his kingdom means for us, the, the real heart issue of the day is, is asking the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be my Lord? Because it's really easy for us in church and in life to go, oh yes, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. But that doesn't mean much if you don't live with Jesus as your Lord. Jesus didn't come just to be generically Lord over everything. Jesus came to be Lord individually over everyone and everything. Thus the line of the song, let every heart prepare him room. You don't get to experience the kingdom of God and Jesus unless Jesus is your Lord personally. And so I want you to consider on the front end, what does it mean in your marriage, if you're married, for Jesus to truly be Lord? 
master controller in your marriage? What does it mean in your budget and your spending if Jesus is really your Lord? What's it mean for your career, your college plans, if Jesus is Lord? What does it mean in your dating relationships, who you date, what you do when you date, if Jesus is Lord? What does his lordship mean for those things? Now, as I said, several different terms can, can be given as the definition for Lord, but master and controller, I really want to home in on those. There's something about that word controller that's uncomfortable, isn't there? I'm not crazy about that. I'm just telling you. If you are a control freak, it freaks you out to think that somebody else gets to be in control of your life, doesn't it? I'm glad I'm not a control freak. I know that. And those of you who know me know what a joke that is. And I I hate thinking about how many different things in my life are little reflections of just how much of a control freak I am. I mean, there's probably nothing that shows it more clearly than just something as simple as me sitting down to watch a college football game. Those of you who know me know that that is a high holy hour for me to get to watch college football. Don't touch my remote control while I'm watching the football game. Now, I'm going to touch it a lot because if I'm watching a game, there has to be the alternate game that's playing that I can flip to during all the commercials. And see, I'm really skilled because I have an alternate for the alternate because when the commercials line up where games A and B are both in commercial, I've got to have a third game to go to. But there's a timer in the back of my brain that five seconds before the commercials are over, it goes ding, and I'm back to the main game. You can't hold my remote during the game because I'm not sure you have that timer in your brain. I never miss a play. You might. And so I have to be in control. I'm just telling you how messed up I am. You know. And it actually will make me so nervous all game long if somebody else has the remote control. That's a control freak. I see it when I'm driving down the road and somebody else is at the wheel. If I'm in the passenger seat... I mean, everybody knows how to do this, to just sit there and chill while somebody else drives. I don't know how to do that because I'm constantly looking at your speed and how close you are to the person in front of you and how close you are to the curb, and I'm wanting to take the wheel and go, get in the middle of the lane. Would you put two seconds between you and the car in front of you? You're going 47, it's a 35. I'm thinking this. I've learned not to say it. That causes a lot of problems. But I'm thinking it the whole time because I am a control freak. And some of you are in good company with me because you are too. Some of you are. How many of you in the room are list makers? You, you like to write out a list every day of what you're going to do. Welcome to the club, control freaks. You know, part of the reason we love to make those lists is because this list is a declaration of the fact that I'm in control of my day. This is what I'm going to do today. Don't get in the way of my list. Don't screw up my list by interrupting. what This is what I'm going to do today. And if you interrupt my day, I may not get all of this done, so don't bother me. I'm just admitting to you. These are control issues. They point to the fact that it's going to be a struggle. It is a struggle for people like us to completely surrender control to someone else, even someone who is good and who loves us and who can be trusted. Those of us that are control freaks, it's spelled out, you know, it's, it's fleshed out in so many different ways. You know, if you're a control freak and you've got kids, you probably picture Christmas morning, something like this. The kids are going to come down to where the Christmas tree is and they're going to come in their hair is going to be combed and their teeth are already going to be brushed and, and they're going to come in. They're not going to be fighting. They're going to be smiling And they're going to say, Mom and Dad, before we open the gifts, could we hear one more time the Christmas story about Jesus? (laughs) And 
angels are going to sing and choir, you know, behind them as this is happening. And they're going to say, before I get my gifts, could I give my gifts? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because, you know, we want to control the world. We want it to look like that. And it never does, does it? It, it never looks the way that we want to shape it into. We can never get it there because when we're in control, it just never works out quite right, does it? We think that it should, but it doesn't. Well, what does it look like for Jesus to be in control? How do you let Jesus be in control of your life? And, and before we really get to the meat of what I'm going to say, there's one other thing I want to mention, and it's this, that when we talk about the lordship of Jesus, it's funny how our terminology gets really off-center, that we love to talk about, you need to make, the G- make Jesus the Lord of your life. How many times have you heard that expression? Tom, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Can I just say... You don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus just is Lord. <laughs> you never have made Jesus Lord of anything. Jesus is Lord of everything. And the only thing we do is we submit to what already is. That he is the Lord over everyone and everything. And the only wise response to that is to surrender your life to his lordship. And so what I want to do today is just talk about two different things in response to that. For those of us who would recognize his lordship and respond to that in declaring, okay, I want Jesus to be my Lord, there are really kind of two different ways that you can do that. And I want you to just really look at your own life today in the next several minutes, and I want you to ask some real hard questions about which of these two categories do I fall into as we consider the issue of how we respond to Christ's lordship. Now, of the two ways we can respond, the first one is this. That is the partially surrendered life. And unfortunately, I really believe that this is where most American Christians land. That we recognize that Jesus is Lord. We'll say out loud, oh yeah, we believe Jesus is Lord. We believe he died on the cross. We believe he rose from the dead. We are Christians. We will say that we're Christians. We will have an affiliation at some level with a church. But we're going to live our lives in a way where we're just cultural Christians. Where it's okay to, to acknowledge Jesus and to acknowledge some type of Christian faith. But we're not going to really live our lives wrapped around Jesus and what he would say and what his word teaches us or his leadership in our lives. Now, I'm really convinced that I'm so grateful we live where we do. I'm grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy. But I am convinced that living in America in this respect puts us at a great disadvantage to most of the other people in the world. People who live in third world countries where they deal with with terrible problems of poverty, people who live in parts of the world where they face daily persecution and threats because of their faith, that weeds things out and simplifies things a lot. There are not a lot of cultural Christians in those places. Where it may cost you your life, where it may cost you your job, if you profess faith in Jesus, you're not going to be a cultural Christian. You're either going to say openly that you are not a Christian or you're going to really surrender your life to Christ. I mean, you see how how persecution and suffering can sort of weed things out. We live in a country where it's an advantage to be a Christian. I mean, we're still there. I know the ACLU and all these other people, you know, they're always beating the drum, trying to do everything they can to to push Christianity back and marginalize it. And I know they've had some successes, but look, the world in which we live today, especially in the Bible Belt, it's still an advantage to say publicly you're a Christian. You get that, don't you? And you may think, well, it's not an advantage at my job. Yeah, but in life in general, it is so safe to say you're a Christian. I mean, if you don't think so, consider if you decided to run for office today. 
If you're going to run for governor in this state, you're going to say you're a Christian or that you're not a Christian. You better say you're a Christian because you're not, not going to get elected in this state if you don't at least say that you're a Christian. Now, you don't have to do anything that demonstrates Christian faith at all. Just say you're a Christian. That's the primary thing because it's so culturally acceptable. And this really is the heart of the problem. We have this brand of Christianity that carries all of the, the wrappings and exterior trappings of Christian faith, and there's nothing solid behind it. It's just kind of an empty shell. It's like a, a beautifully wrapped Christmas gift with nothing inside the package. Jesus saw this, and he confronted it again and again in passages like Luke six forty six, when he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Craig Rochelle has recently written a book about this entitled Christian Atheists where he talks about the, the modern epidemic in the American culture and church of people who absolutely believe in God and profess faith in that God, but practically speaking, they live as atheists. They live as if there is no God. Professing Christianity, church affiliation, but in terms of the decisions of their lives and the choices that they make and how they spend their money and how they do relationships and what they invest in, they live as if there is no God in the universe. And Jesus says, why would you even play this game? Why pay lip service to me when those words don't mean anything? Calling me Lord doesn't mean anything if I am not the master and controller of your life. It's as though we take Scripture itself and just read through and when we find a page that contain something that we don't like, we just rip it out, throw it in the fire, throw it in the trash. Oh, I don't like that. And so we just totally eliminate it. I know the Bible says that I'm to forgive people who offend me, but, 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 and then I fill in the blank. I know the Bible says that, that I should turn the other cheek, but, but you don't know what this person did to me. I know the Bible says that I should tithe, but, but right now I'm in a financial bind. You notice how many times those little butts become great big butts that get in our way? I, I know the Bible says this, but every time we stick a butt like that in there, we've just ripped out another page of Scripture. You know, they say that Thomas Jefferson's Bible, they still have it, it's, it's got holes all the way through it. Jefferson, when he would read a passage that he didn't like or didn't agree with, he would take a knife and he would literally carve out that section of Scripture and discard it. Now, he's one of the great figures in American history and we, we have great respect for him. That used to always really bother me to think, man, this guy, he literally carved up his Bible. If he didn't like something, he tossed it aside. Now, that's not a good practice, but I will say, I'll give him credit for this. At least he owned his faith the way that it was. The truth be told, if we owned our faith in terms of how we live it, we wouldn't just have holes in our Bible. There'd be whole books of the Bible missing, wouldn't there? Many of us, the way that we live out our faith, it's like, oh, yeah, this whole thing about forgiveness or about generosity. I don't like that. Rip into the fire. Jesus didn't want any part of that. If there were going to be a theme verse for that kind of lifestyle, for the partially surrendered life, 
Maybe Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 would be a, a great verse to memorize, but you'll need to do it from the PSV. That would be the partially surrendered version. Let me read it to you from the PSV. It says, Trust in the Lord with some of your heart, and lean on your own understanding. And some of your ways acknowledge Him, and you can make your own path straight. That fits, doesn't it? Because in truth, that's where a lot of us live our lives. I'm a Christian, and I, I trust in the Lord with some of my heart and parts of my life. But, I mean, God's given me a mind. He's given me common sense. I'm supposed to use that. So a lot of times I'm going to lean on my own understanding. But now in some of my ways, I am going to acknowledge Him. I'm going to go to church sometimes. Sometimes I'm going to read my little daily bread devotion or maybe even actually read the Bible. That basket goes by on Sundays. I'm going to drop in a 10 or maybe if I'm feeling generous, pop in a 20. Just want to acknowledge the Lord in some of my ways. And I'll just, between me and God, we'll, we'll keep things rocking along and going straight. Jesus made it clear that that doesn't in any way represent Christianity or what he called us to. Jesus is not willing to be the part-time Lord of anyone or anything. Jesus is Lord, Master, Controller, Supreme in authority. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. This whole notion of giving Jesus part of our lives doesn't sound anything like what Jesus taught. Jesus made it clear, you want to follow me? You want to be a part of my band? You better take up a cross because it's going to cost you your life. You want to gain your life? You're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to give up control. And for all the people who said, oh, I'll follow you, but... I'll follow you, but, but, but I need to first... Uh, go back and take care of some things. Jesus would look at them and say, Look, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Either get on with me or go stay with your family. This thing of being somewhere in between isn't going to cut it. Lukewarm doesn't cut it for him. Jesus being Lord means that every part of our life belongs to him. So I want to ask you a real basic question. What area of your life doesn't fall into the Lordship of Christ? What area of your life do you not constantly surrender to Jesus to be in control of? I want you to look at your outline. I've, I've put that question in there. What have I not surrendered to the Lord? And I want you to take a moment that you stop looking this way. I don't want you to looking at me or focused on me for a minute. And I want you to take that very simple question. And I want you to ask it in your heart, but I want you to direct your heart to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, is there any area of my life that is not fully surrendered to Christ? Is there a relationship, my job, my finances, my future, my kids? If you want to close your eyes just to center on Him, feel free to do that. But I want us to just be still and quiet for a minute asking that question. Lord, is there any area that's not fully surrendered to you.
I'll tell you, as I asked that question of myself this week, I'm frustrated to find that there are still answers to that that aren't just, yeah, everything's surrendered to Christ. Because I'm an all-or-nothing kind of person. I'm a black or white, fully in or fully out kind of person generally in life and in faith. And so, you know, since the time I was a teenager, I'm like, man, whatever it is, if it's in my life, if it's, if it's something that I control, it belongs to Jesus has been my attitude. And yet, as I was preparing this message and realized, you know, I need to go back and ask God, show me what in my life I've tried to still stay in control of and not surrender to you. And as the Holy Spirit is so faithful to do, he put his finger right on something and said, uh, this would be it. This would be the top of the list. I was kind of surprised by, by what he pointed out. He said, your children, which are not children anymore, my girls are... Whitney will be 24 next month, and Lindsay's 19. And I felt like sort of an odd answer. The Holy Spirit so clearly put his finger on that. It's like, well, how am I not surrendering that? He said, because you still feel like you need to control their lives, their future, how they live, where they're going to live, where they're going to go to school, what they're going to do for a living, who they're going to date, who they're going to marry. You, you want to explain it away. It's just you want to be a, a loving and involved parent in their lives. What you want to do is control their lives. Those girls were mine before they were yours, and I know how to lead them. They both belong to me, and I know how to lead their lives, and you can't let go of them and trust them to my care. And all I could do was say, you're right. I haven't. And every time I still try and influence and control those things, do you know what I do? I damage the relationship. So that's what we always do when we have to control what God is supposed to control. We always foul it up, don't we? And so I've had to go through the same thing this week of going, God, they were yours before they were mine. As much as I love them, I know you love them more. I'm just going to trust you. You lead them to the right people. You keep them in the right places. I'll love them, but I won't, you know, the best I know how, I'm not going to try and lead their lives. I'm going to let you and your spirit do that. It's a, it's a challenge. What was it in your life? I hope, you, I hope you've made some notes. In your small group, you're going to go back and revisit this this week. Now, there is the second answer to the question of how do we respond to the Lordship of Jesus? We can partially surrender and still profess that Jesus is Lord, but then there is the much better answer, and that is the fully surrendered life. We're not just talking about when it's convenient. We're talking about a full-on hold, nothing back. My life is not my own. From here to eternity, all-out commitment to Christ. Knowing that you've been bought with a price, yielding everything to Him... Romans 14, 7, and 8 is such a a great passage that sums this up where Paul writes, For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. How many of you are alive today? Not bad, about half. We had about two-thirds in the first service. We're still better than the average church. If you're alive... Why are you alive, according to Paul? Why do you live? Not a trick question. Why do you live? There you go. And if you die, why do you die? Who do you belong to? It's a real simple truth in this passage, isn't it? Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. So if you're alive, you live to honor the Lord. And if your life comes to an end, you let your death happen in a way that the Lord is going to be honored because you and I belong to the Lord. 
That's a hard concept for us to accept, isn't it? Belonging to somebody else. Sounds kind of like slavery, doesn't it? Well, slavery is not quite the analogy that we're looking for. I want to share another one with you that I think will, will connect more easily. How many of you right now in the room, you are wearing a wedding band on your finger? Let me, let me see them. Okay, of those, how many of you are wearing, actually, this is not like the third version of it because you lost the first two. How many of you are wearing the wedding band that your spouse gave you on your wedding day? Let me see them. A bunch. Cool. I'm not wearing one. I'm not married at this point. But I have been for 24 years and, and know a lot about what that's like. So let me ask you, of those of you who just raised your hand, that received that on your wedding day from your spouse, how much did you have to pay your spouse to give you that? How much did, did you shell out there on your wedding day so that they would hand over a ring, put it on your finger? Or just like the first service, a bunch of freeloaders. You didn't pay anything to get that ring, did you? You just held out your hand and they popped it on as a free gift, 100% of you. Now let me ask you the question a little bit differently. I ask you how much you paid for it to get it. Now let me ask you, but how much has it cost you? <laughs> that question's got a different answer, doesn't it? Oh, you got the ring for free on the day you got it, didn't you? Has it cost you anything since? Oh, you better know it has. It's cost you something every day of your life. Now, it's tremendously enriched your life, hasn't it? That whole transaction. But, oh, it's come with a price tag. For everybody who raised your hand that you're currently wearing a wedding ring, meaning that you are currently married, let me just ask you, if I were to pose the question to you, so what are you going to do with the rest of your day? What are you going to do all afternoon? It's a Sunday. What are you going to do with your Sunday afternoon and your Sunday evening? How many of you who just raised your hand wearing a wedding ring can answer that question with no consideration of anybody else, what they're thinking, what they're planning? Huh. Hopefully none of you. If you're smart, you can't do that. If I say, so what are you going to do for Christmas? What are you going to do on Christmas Day? What are you going to do through the holidays? If you can answer that question and give no consideration to anybody else, what they think and what they would want, well, you're messed up. If you're wearing a wedding ring and you don't think for a minute about the person who gave you that ring and how you answer those questions, you've got a fouled up marriage, don't you? Why? Because that ring is an outward symbol that declares to the whole world, I belong to somebody else. I don't just run around and make decisions that are just whatever's good for me, whatever feels good to me, whatever makes me happy. Every significant decision that I make in my life, if I'm wearing a wedding ring, says I stop to consider somebody else, how it's going to impact them, what they need, what they would want, and I make a decision in light of the two of us. Right? For those of you who aren't doing that, you can call me this week. We'll set up counseling. Because if you're not thinking about somebody else and how your decisions impact them and what they would want, you haven't learned to do marriage very well. We well, see this is a picture of a spiritual reality. Jesus is the one who is ultimately relational, who invites us to the most intimate relationship. It's even more intimate than marriage. He doesn't put a ring on your finger but he does seal the deal with a deposit of his Holy Spirit placed in you, which is a lot like a wedding ring. It is his declaration that he is claiming you forevermore. He offers you the gift of forgiveness 
eternal life, salvation, and peace with God. And the only way you can receive those things is to accept a gift. Just like when you look at a bride and a groom standing in front of the church at a wedding, and you never, ever, ever see cash change hands. I've done a bunch of weddings in my life. I've never seen anybody pay for a wedding ring. I've never seen anybody go, thank you for making those promises. Here's $500 as a down payment. They've never done it. What you have happen is a free exchange of gifts as you put rings on each other's fingers and as you stand there and freely make a commitment. You never pay for it. You have to receive a gift. Forgiveness, eternal life, salvation, those things are always a gift. But just like that wedding ring, you didn't pay a dime for it, but it cost you something on every day of the rest of your life. Salvation works the same way. Oh, your life's going to be tremendously enriched, but something is thoroughly fouled up if it doesn't mean that every day for the rest of your life, every significant decision you make, you have to pause to consider somebody other than yourself in that decision because you belong to somebody else. And now you're not just thinking about your spouse, but every significant decision, you're thinking about, wait a minute, I live in relationship with Jesus. He's my Lord and Master. That's even more significant than having a wife or having a husband. And so what would Jesus want to do? How would this decision impact Jesus and our relationship and his reputation in the world? Now do you begin to see how the Lordship of Jesus really expresses itself in every decision of life because you belong to someone else? I am afraid at times, you know, when we think about the reality of Christmas and how we consider Christ at Christmas time, we, you know, we, we love to remember the baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. And I think in some ways that we like that version of Jesus. Because little six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus isn't a threat to anybody, is he? Little baby Jesus, we could just hold him in our arms and, oh, we love Jesus. And for some of us, that's about the extent of a love relationship with Jesus. We love a version of Jesus that poses no threat to us and the plans that we have for our lives. And I want to tell you, Jesus ain't a baby. And he doesn't weigh six pounds and eight ounces. He was only a baby very briefly. The Jesus we're talking about today, he is the Lord over all the earth. He is the one who existed before time as we know it, before the universe was ever created. It is by His wisdom and His powerful spoken word that everything came into existence. And it is by His authority and His power that everything today is sustained. It is because of Him, because of His wisdom and the order of what He has created and that He holds together that everything doesn't fly apart, that humanity doesn't cave in on itself and all of us kill one another. It is because of His authority and because of what He holds in place that the powers of the kingdom of darkness don't come in and annihilate us he is the lord who is in control and it is not because he somehow hasn't managed to get things back under his control that evil is still on the loose that there still is a devil and demons that there still is a kingdom of darkness and that there are expressions of of humanity that are evil and they're set against god it's not because he's not in control he is the the one sent by the father uniquely commissioned with a secret plan to step into the earth into time and history and to exert his control and authority. And when he showed up as the babe of Bethlehem, it wasn't that he was trying to see if he could sort of weasel his way into regaining a little bit of influence and control. No! 
He was coming back to completely take over. And he is doing exactly what he planned to do. He's not calling an emergency session of the Holy Trinity to try and figure out how can they redirect the course of history. He's in control of history. What happened, it was like when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. It was like he stepped into a, a wasteland where the whole world was just you know, like big dry fields of, of wheat and grassland, just dead and dry. And he came to earth just seemingly so obscurely with one little pack of matches in his hand. And with his life and ministry, he went around just sort of striking matches and setting them to the ground. And it just seemed that what he did at the time just had such little effect, just little small controlled blaze in one part of the world. But just a little while, just days after he returned to heaven, a wind blew on that fire on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came to earth and he began to blow on what Jesus had brought to earth, the fire that he had brought. And I want to tell you, that fire isn't dying down. That fire hasn't been rained on and gone out. That fire has spread like crazy when jesus was on earth and he departed to go back to heaven you could take that fire and you could fit it in one room the people who belonged to him could fit in one upper room but when the wind of the spirit blew on what jesus had done with his life on earth that thing began to spread so fast that 70 years later by the end of the first century one out of 22 people on planet Earth had come to know and trust Jesus as their Lord. And here we are, 1,900 years after that, more than one-third of this planet has come to know and trust Jesus as Lord. The fire is spreading. The work of Jesus is continuing. And Paul said that Jesus, having been uniquely sent by the Father to bring everything in heaven and on earth under full subjection to himself, when that is finally finished, when he has returned, when the end has finally happened, when the, the serpent has been crushed, when he and all of his followers have been thrown into the lake of fire, and everything in heaven and on earth and under of the earth declares that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said at that point, Jesus will hand everything in creation, the whole kingdom, back over to his Father and say, Sir, it is all in order as planned. That Jesus is the one who says, I will either be Lord of all or not Lord at all in your life. It ain't six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus that you're giving your life to. It is the Lord of all creation. That Jesus is who reigns and who invites you. Surrender your life to him. He is good. He is in control. And what he is doing is the most significant thing on the earth. So what do you do? If when you look in your own life, you go, I get that he's great, I get that he's Lord, but I know that right here he hasn't fully been my Lord. What do I do? Well, you repent. For starters, you repent. You do the same thing I have to do. You agree with God and say, I have been wrong to try and be the controller of this area of my life. And you, you made me, Jesus I'm made for you, I'm owned by you. And I confess that as sin, that I've tried to control this area of my life, and I surrender it to you. The true version of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we sort of played with that passage a minute ago, but the true version of that's a good answer to the question. You just put this into practice. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. A key word in that is the word acknowledge. The Hebrew word there <coughs> is the word that also gets it translated as <coughs> to know. In the, you know, the biblical sense of to know, like Adam knew Eve, or you know, Mary did not know Joseph before Jesus was born. It's the, it's the term for intimacy, like intimacy in a marriage. In all your ways, know the Lord. Know Him intimately. Trust Him. If you're going to do what He's saying here, if you're going to trust the Lord with all your heart, if you're going to trust all of your ways, all of your plans, all of your future to Him, you're going to have to intimately know Him so that you can trust Him with those decisions. And, and look, the, the bottom line is so simple in this. In the areas of your life, in the areas of my life, where I don't surrender to Christ's lordship, it's because I don't know him well enough. I mean, think about it. If in your finances, we'll just use an easy example. If in your finances, you can't honor, do what the scripture says, and honor the Lord with the first fruits of what your life produces financially. The scripture defines very clearly, you know, the tithe, the first tenth, tenth belongs to the Lord. And for so many people, that's like this big stumbling block. Well, you know, one of these days I'll get around to it or whatever. We make our excuses, but we don't do that. Look, just cut to the chase. If you don't do that and you understand the principle, there's one thing if you've just never been taught about that. But if you've been taught that principle, that this is the divine portion that we don't mess with, we, it all belongs to God, but we give him the first tenth because it uniquely represents what belongs to him that we don't get to touch as a declaration that it's all his to do with as he wants to, but we give him the first tenth. If you know that, and you don't practice it, for all the other buts that you'd insert in there for why you don't do it, let me just clear all those off the page and say, you don't do it because you don't know Christ in that area of your life. You don't really know him intimately. Because if you really knew him, let me tell you what you would recognize. You'd recognize that he is, God is a father to you, and that ultimately he is generous, he is always a giver, and that you absolutely cannot and will not outgive him. And that every one of his children who take part in what he's doing to be generous in the world and to supply the needs of others, he has promised he will always come through. He will always supply your needs. You can't outgive him. When he sees someone being generous, he's going to enable them to be more generous. And when you really know that about God in an intimate way, when you know him that way, it's not scary to give. And you won't be hung up on a tithe. The reality of the matter is you'll be a grace giver because you just know how much that pleases God and how God just always blesses that. In the area of, of relationships, I mean, this is one of the things, it's such a simple thing when we just you know, think about it generically. It's such a simple thing to know the right answer. But you know, when someone who is single, they fall in love, they get in a dating relationship, they pursue a relationship, and it's a, it's a believer but they're pursuing a relationship with somebody who's not a believer. Or, or somebody who's like, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not really a Christian and I don't go to church. And so then you begin to justify the relationship. Well, you know, I, I'm going to help them come to know Jesus through this relationship. You know, one day I'm going I'm to help them be saved because of this relationship. Well, the scripture spoke to the issue so clearly. You know, a believer is not to be equally yoked with an unbeliever, period. You can be their friend, love them, and pray for them. But the whole idea of pursuing a relationship, going to get married to this person, the scriptures are so clear on this, and yet we want to explain it away. We want to make excuses. I mean, the bottom line is real simple. 
we're not going to submit that relationship to the Lordship of Christ because we know what that would mean. That would mean I don't get to marry this person in this situation. Not as they are. And we'll make excuses for why it's okay to continue to pursue that relationship. Do you know why we do that? Because we don't know the Lord well enough. Because if we really knew the Lord, we would know He loves us so much. He always wants what's best for us. And that He is going to put us in the healthiest, best, most life-giving relationships that we possibly could be in. And that if a relationship is something that is not honoring to God, that Christ is not the center of, and we have to step back from that, we can so rest in the fact that God knows our heart's needs. God knows how to bring the right person into our lives. He knows how to satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. And the truth of the matter is, it's like, I'll tell you what I know better. I know better a relationship with this person and what it's like, and even though it's got a downside, I know I can count on that. I don't know what I can count on from God. That's what we're ultimately saying. For Jesus to be Lord, it means every relationship. It means every decision about my finances, about my education, about my career, my future, that every part of my life gets submitted to Christ for Him to be in control of. My fear is that many of us perceive that we've done what Jesus has called us to do in terms of following Him without getting anywhere close to the reality of, of what he, he really called for. The, the most haunting passage to me in all of the New Testament is so troubling to me to, to think about the average churchgoer and what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he said, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. That line is worth backing up and underlining. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and we perform miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Well, that's one of those passages that always makes you Take a step back and think and look hard in the mirror, isn't it? The whole message today has been about Jesus as Lord. And what Jesus is spelling out is on the day of judgment, he's saying you won't believe how many people are going to stand before me who are going to say, oh, for years I, I've known you as Lord. I've told everybody that you were the Lord. And he's saying they don't belong. They will not go to heaven. There's only one other alternative. They ain't going to purgatory. It's heaven or hell. And he said, you'll, you'll be shocked how many people are going to just name off all of the open expressions of faith and religion that they've had in their lives. Jesus, yeah, I know you. You're my Lord. I was so involved in church. Oh, Lord, we, don't you remember all the things that we did? We cast out demons and all the miracles we had in our services. Lord, don't you remember all the good things that we did? Don't you remember all the stuff we did at Thanksgiving and the gifts we gave at Christmas? We helped so many people. You remember all that, don't you, Jesus? And he says the great tragedy of that moment, the unspeakable tragedy, is that I'll have to look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. I knew about all your activities. I knew about all your religious involvement. 
I just never knew you. Because you see, you never get in a relationship with Jesus on your own terms. You never get to have a relationship with Jesus by letting him have a little slice of your life. Letting him, you know, we talk about letting Jesus come into your life. It's like, I'm going to open the back door, Jesus, and you come in, and there's, I've got a room set aside for you, and you can hang out in there. And different times of the week or in the year, I'm going to go into Jesus' room and be with you, Jesus. But please keep your door closed and stay quiet so I can get on with my life and all the other rooms of my life. Jesus will not stay in his room. Jesus owns the house or he doesn't visit the house. I'm so afraid that there are millions of people in America who openly profess Jesus as Lord. I'm afraid that there are millions of people in the Bible Belt, people all around us. I'm so afraid that there are people who come and go here on a weekly basis. I don't mean this in a judgmental way. I'm just admitting honest, heartfelt concern and fear that there are people all around who believe because I have an affiliation with the church, because I prayed a sinner's prayer asking Jesus to forgive my sins, because I got baptized, I'm okay with God. And unfortunately, pastors have many times helped to reinforce that. One of the biggest ways we've done that is at funerals. If you pay attention to pastors at funerals, nobody's ever gone to hell in the south at least. Everybody in the Bible Belt is in heaven. I have yet to show up for a funeral that anybody ever had the possibility of going to hell. Because at the very least, everybody in the south, you know, 70 years ago when they were in Bible school, they walked forward and shook the pastor's hand and got baptized. Now, we haven't been able to see anything in their life that demonstrated anything to do with Jesus being Lord, but we remember that. He prayed a prayer. He got wet in a Baptist baptistry. So we know, once saved, always saved, that he's in heaven. Friends, if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, yesterday, today, tomorrow, you have no reason for confidence. He did not come to have a little share of your life. He did not come so you could have a Bible school experience. He didn't come so you could just pray a prayer at the end of a service and then go back out that door and live your life on your own terms and get a free ticket to heaven. He had no interest in creating that. He was calling out an army of people who would be a part of the family of God and who would demonstrate that they belonged by living their lives as members of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is everywhere. A heart is surrendered fully to the rule of Christ. The the song for the day, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. It's a picture of how you get in the kingdom. You have a heart that recognizes Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and He must be Lord and King in my life over all of me and everything that I have. Today's a day for examination. Advent is a season for examination. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, Test yourselves. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to churchgoers. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It's something that we ought to have to do periodically. Advent is a call to that. Jesus is in control. His plan is being worked out. 
His kingdom is expanding and the full expression of it is coming. Do you belong? Do you belong to the king? Because when he shows up, it's too late to decide then which side to be on. Now is the time. Would you bow together as we pray right now? Father, I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to take our selfish hearts, our strong wills, our independent spirits, and yield all of that, every part of who we are, every relationship that we have to you. Please forgive us for all the times that we have tried to hold on to control or retake control of our lives. We want to be people who are fully yours. We realize, Jesus, we have been purchased with the high price of your shed blood and your life sacrificed. Thank you for that. While everybody's head's still bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask you if you will. When we asked the question earlier, what part of your life is not surrendered to Christ? If there was some area that came to mind, maybe the Holy Spirit just called you to remember it, something specifically that is not yielded to Christ that needs to be, and today you are just ready to hand that to Him. Would you just indicate that by raising your hand saying, yes, boy, there's, there's one or more areas of my life I am really needing to hand off to Him, and I want to do that today. Father, you see our hands, you know our hearts. Help us, please to surrender these things to you. And we ask you to speak, to give wisdom, to show us how to move forward. We trust you with these people, with these situations, with these financial issues. We trust you with our future. God, help us, every one of us raising our hands today, help us to yield to you. Help us to hear and know and respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit. Help us to obey the truth of your word and help us to walk in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say one final word before we go. A lot of us, a lot of you who are listening and watching online, a lot of us who are here in the room today, the way that we process and respond to the message today, it's as believers. And reality is this. When we come to faith, it is by yielding all that we are and have to Christ. We ask Him to be Lord over that, to forgive our sins, and take control of our lives. The problem is, Paul said in Romans 12, that we are living sacrifices. And you know the whole problem with living sacrifices. A, a dead sacrifice, you kill it, you throw it on the altar, he stays there. He says every day you have to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Well, you know the problem with that. If you're alive and you're the sacrifice, what happens when the fire gets hot? We want to jump off. It's like, oh, wait a minute, that's, that's too painful, that's too costly, and we want to you know, get out of the fire. Well, life works that way. We sincerely surrender everything to Christ and then we rock along for a week, a month, a year, a decade, whatever. And at some point along the way, it gets a little too uncomfortable to follow Christ in a certain area and what do we do? A lot of times we step back and we, we try and retake control and we compromise. And for most of us, that's what we've been dealing with in this message. Areas, it's not that we're unbelievers, it's areas that we have tried to retake control of. But I don't want to run past this most basic thing. There are people in the room, there are people listening and watching online right now, that for you, it's not a matter of resubmitting a slice of your life. 
You may have had a religious experience before, but the truth of the matter is you have never known Jesus as Lord. And I'm not inviting you to be more involved in religion or in church. I'm inviting you to recognize your need for a saving relationship with Christ. Your need to let go of everything. It will be a free gift for you to receive salvation and forgiveness. But it will cost you something every day for the rest of your life. It will be the best exchange you ever make. But please don't walk away from today just sort of filing this away. Because it's the most important decision of your life. I just want to give you an opportunity to do the most basic and important thing in your life. And that is before we leave... To trust Christ. And I know you may say, wait a minute, preacher, you're contradicting yourself. You, you just said to say a little prayer at the end of a service isn't sufficient. If that's all you do is say a prayer and then go back and take control of your life and live for yourself, it's not sufficient. In the same way that two people, a man and a woman, who get up in front of a pastor and a church and they make promises and they exchange rings, if that's all they do and they go back and they live selfishly and they, they give no consideration to each other, what they did on the wedding day doesn't mean much if they don't live as married people for the rest of their lives. Well, if all you did today is pray a prayer, then that won't mean anything. But there has to be the wedding day. There has to be the moment of commitment. And for some of you, spiritually speaking, today needs to be your wedding day. It needs to be your day of commitment that you receive Christ and that you let him mark you and influence every decision that you make for the rest of your life. I'm going to invite you to bow with me one more time. And if today that's what you need to do, would you sincerely from your heart just pray with me a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I trust you today. I know that you died for me. I need you to live in me. I want you to be Lord of my life. The best I know how, I'm giving you control. Would you lead me? Would you teach me? Please help me to live for you. Thank you for the gift of salvation and eternal life. Lord, I thank you so much for your love and for your faithfulness and for the fact that you're not working to keep people out of the kingdom, that you're working day and night to draw men and women, boys and girls, into your family. Thank you that you've done that today. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would seal these who today have trusted you for forgiveness and salvation. And I pray, God, that you would bless and use them, that you would grow them in that faith now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.